Good morning. My name is A.T. Stoddard, and I'm a member here, and it's a, a Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, to be installed as uh, one of the ruling elders here at the church. Our passage this morning is continuing in Colossians. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So if you would, please follow along as we hear God's word. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Please join me in prayer. Father, we ask that as we look at this passage this morning that you might open our hearts and minds to hear your word, that you would speak to us through it. And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as John mentioned, he was at General Assembly this week, which is why I'm up here preaching today to uh, give him some relief from trying to be at that and get back and not, uh, not have to do a sermon. Uh, it's some of you may be familiar with General Assembly. John mentioned a little bit about it, but I'm sure some of you here are, are not as familiar with what General Assembly is and uh, the nature of our denomination. And so I want to point out, we, we are a connected church. We're part of the Presbyterian Church in America. That is our denomination. And we're part of a presbytery. The presbyteries are more geographically Oriented, and all of the presbyteries in the country make up our denomination. The General Assembly meets once a year to address matters of importance to the denomination as a whole. And each church may send representatives, um, as John went and, and represented us at the General Assembly meeting. But unlike some denominations, nothing really originates at General Assembly for our church. All the actions at our General Assembly meeting originate either from a local church or from a presbytery, which asks the General Assembly to consider the matter. Now, I don't want to spend much time on church government and talking about that, but really want to point out that we are a connected church with all the other believers in the churches within our denomination. I'm sure John would be happy to fill you in more on any details. If you have questions about General Assembly, that's all I'm going to say uh, this morning. But again, we're connected through our denomination with other churches. But not only that, we are connected with believers throughout the world. Each week, we normally pray for other churches. We did that today. And not only for specific churches, but for the church in China, John prayed for them, and the persecuted church. In Colossians chapter 1, 
we ended last week with Paul's desire for maturity of those who hear his word, and that Christ is our lifeline to maturity. We continue that message today, but we will see that Paul's desire extend to those whom he has never met. In our passage, Paul explains his goal for his labor in the last two verses of chapter 1. We must be careful when we see a new chapter starting like chapter 2. Some chapter divisions in the Bible do not start a new thought. Here Paul begins with 4, which links us back to what he has just said in the last verses of chapter 1. So it doesn't stand alone. And we might see it more like how a good novel leads into the next chapter. A good writer leaves you hanging at the end of a chapter so you want to keep reading long after you should have turned out the light and gone to sleep. In the Bible, however, a lot of the chapter and verse divisions having been added give us reference points and don't necessarily break up as a train of thought. And so as we look at this, we're seeing Paul writing saying, for, referring back to what he had just said. And he continues this theme that we are looking at from the book of Colossians. Jesus is enough. Paul's desire in his labor is for his readers to have a full understanding of the knowledge of Christ. And we will look at, at three aspects of his desire for the Colossians. In verses 1 to 3, we'll see Paul's goal. In verse 4, Paul gives us a warning. And in verse 5, Paul tells of his reward. So to begin, Paul's goal. He wants them to know he is contending for them. Some translations use struggle. Some say strive. The New Living Translation uses agonized. The meaning is related to striving as in an athletic competition. And the meaning in, in verse 29 of chapter 1 is similar. Paul is strenuously contending, struggling with all Christ's energy that works powerfully in him. In Hebrews 12.1, we read, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word translated as race is the same word as contend or struggle in our passage today. So it relates to that striving, trying to achieve, working hard to accomplish something. Epaphras is mentioned in chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 12. And Epaphras is likely the one who started the Colossian church. And in that verse, Paul says Epaphras is struggling on their behalf in his prayers. It uses the same word to describe what Epaphras is doing as what Paul says he is doing in our verse in chapter 2. And so I think it should convict us to be... Oh, I'm sorry, I think I jumped ahead. Yes, so Paul struggles. It should convict us, we'll get to that. But Paul struggles on behalf of those who he has not met, whom he has not seen face to face. Paul is praying, 
And he prays not only for the Colossians, but he says for the Laodiceans. And in fact, he says he is in conflict in that prayer, striving, struggling, agonizing. So do we pray for those whom we have not seen? Most weeks as a congregation includes another church. We often pray for other local churches in our area. They may be churches in our denomination. We often pray for churches in the Salt Lake area that are not part of our denomination. Today we prayed for Grace Bible Church in Kasumo. We often pray for other particular churches that we know of, and we pray for the church at large. But do we struggle and strive in our prayers for believers in other churches? Particularly for those we've never seen face to face, like Paul says he is doing. Or is it more of a struggle for you just to pray? This convicted me because I know I am much closer to struggling to pray for these other churches than exerting myself and struggling and striving in the prayer. It may be helpful to use the prayer reminder cards we have out in the narthex for missionaries we support. There's also a guide out there you can use to pray for persecuted churches around the world and it emphasizes different nations. Uh, but Paul was striving in prayer. And so for us, I think it should convict us to be more diligent in our prayers for other churches. As Paul prays for those he has not met, he prays that their hearts would be encouraged. To have their hearts knit together in love. Paul is praying that we would have love for our fellow believers. We are bound together in love through the love of Christ. It is that love of Christ that enables us to have the kind of love that, that knits us together into one body. We should be knit together in spite of our difficult natures. The encouragement that Paul gives is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Paul is linking back to Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 where he says we should be increasing in the knowledge of God. He now says we should have the full assurance of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. The implication is to have deep and accurate knowledge of God's mystery. But what is that mystery? He tells us the mystery is Christ. We're to have deep and accurate knowledge, which means to understand the gospel and God's work of redemption. God gave the promise of a redeemer in Genesis. As a church, we worked through the book of Exodus and saw a picture of God's redeeming work to have a people for himself, all of the, the Old Testament points to God's redeeming work in the coming Messiah. And Christ is the fulfillment of all that had been a mystery before his incarnation. But now, Paul takes us to another level. He says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures 
of wisdom and knowledge. I have to say, I find this difficult to comprehend. Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. We have to wrap our finite minds around the infinite treasures of Christ. I think at best, we can really only fathom a tiny portion of those treasures. And then again, in chapter 1, verse 19 of Colossians, Paul wrote, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Just try to grasp that. In Christ, all the fullness of God is dwelling. And Paul does not speak only of the knowledge of God, but wisdom. And we know the fear of the Lord is wisdom. So having all the fullness of God means Christ is sufficient in all things for those who are in Christ, those who have confessed him as God and placed their faith in him. His atoning work through his death and resurrection is sufficient for the forgiveness of all your sin. God says he will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. God will remember your sin no more when you confess your sin and embrace Christ. And Christ works through the Holy Spirit that we may grow in that knowledge of God, of the mystery which is Christ. Growing in all wisdom and understanding is a lifelong endeavor. We can never give up. We should never really even slow down. Paul describes it as running a race. And in Hebrews 12.1, which I noted earlier, says, let us run the race with endurance. Christ is also sufficient in the circumstances of this life. You may say that I don't know your specific circumstances, and that may be true, but Jesus knows. You may say, well, I'm suffering from bad health. I suffer from addiction. I've lost my income. I've lost a child. My marriage is a wreck. My children have rejected Jesus. You just don't understand how bad my circumstances are. I'm sure you're right. I don't. But whatever your circumstances, Jesus knows, he cares, and he is sufficient. That doesn't mean your circumstances will be easy, that there won't be pain and hurt, but Jesus is sufficient to see you through to that day when there will be no more pain and tears. We need to trust Christ in all circumstances because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not just some, but all the treasures. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Too often people want Christ plus something. That may be in adding to the gospel or adding something just to deal with life's circumstances. What are you looking for? Are you satisfied and content with Christ? Or are you looking for Christ plus something? That was what was happening in the Colossian church. The Colossians were being told they needed to add to the work of Christ. And that brings us to our second consideration. Paul's warning. Paul gives us a warning 
And he addresses this warning to the Colossians and the Laodiceans. And to all he has not seen face to face. That they may not be deluded with reasonable or plausible arguments. There were those who were trying to add to the gospel of the finished work of Christ. They were looking to integrate some Jewish practices. They were integrating some man-made philosophies. And Colossians was written to the churches to correct these false teachings. But how does Paul's warning apply to us? Well, someone may knock on your door with a reasonably sounding argument of a new message of the gospel. You may read a book, sounds reasonable, or be talking with someone that presents some new teaching. What do you hear from those preaching, whether this church or somewhere else? You should test all that you hear through Scripture. The Bereans in Acts 17 heard the preaching of Paul and Silas, and then they examined the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. Are you examining the Scriptures to test what you hear? First, that means you have to know Scripture. Gathering here for our Sunday corporate worship is not enough to learn the Bible, to be able to test what you hear. Understanding the Bible requires personal reading and studying. Unfortunately, we, in addition to being a connected church, we are also a confessional church. That means we have statements of doctrine to help us understand the scripture. And I would say we need to use these statements of doctrine, our confession and catechisms, as a lens to understand what we hear from others. The confession and catechisms are not scripture. Don't be confused there. They are not at the same authority, but they provide our collective understanding of what scripture teaches. These were written by some very intelligent men who met together over a period of about six years to make careful statements of what they believed. And they have survived for centuries and we understand these to be accurate statements of what the Bible teaches us. And these statements of faith should be able to serve as a warning alert for you. Maybe like having the canary in the coal mine for those of us who are old enough to remember that metaphor. But for a lot of you, it's probably more like having the carbon monoxide detector in your home that can give off the warning for something you can't see or smell. And it, knowing what is taught in the scriptures and in our statements of faith and our doctrine may alert you about something before you really have time even to study it. You may be able to sense that something just doesn't seem right. Paul also included the church and Laodicea, as he addresses this in this letter, we don't know a lot about the church, but we do hear about them in the third chapter of the book of Revelation. And it's not a good report. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Did they heed Paul's warning? 
We don't really know for sure, but it appears they had become self-sufficient. They were not relying on the sufficiency of Christ. What will be said of Jordan Valley Church? Will we heed Paul's warning or be deluded into something other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ? There are many churches in the world that were once faithful and have now grown cold. Our own Presbyterian heritage has a history of churches solid in faith that grew cold. Our own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, was formed because of the drift away from biblical truth in the Southern Presbyterian Church. So will it be said of Jordan Valley Church that it was once a solid church, but has now grown cold? A church is more than its pastor. John mentioned how important the leadership is, but the church is much more than that. In fact, the pastor is not even a member of the local church, but is actually called to serve us in the local church. And we cannot rely on just the pastor to keep the church faithful, although he has a very important role in building us up. But we must all have our hearts knit together, upholding one another, encouraging one another, and reminding one another of Paul's warning to us. But Paul doesn't stop here. He brings us to our third consideration, his reward. He rejoices to see how disciplined they are and firm in their faith. Paul is absent from them. He has not met them, as we saw in verse 1. Yet in his striving and prayer for them, he says he is with them in spirit. They have a common faith. Paul is encouraged by knowing they remain firm in their faith. Like Paul, our pastors labor on our behalf. They're not absent from us, but actually with us. They bring us God's word. They pray for us. They visit the sick. They weep for those, with those who are weeping. John unknowingly made my application last week. I'd been working on the message and saw the application in this section. And then he said it last Sunday. Now, it wasn't in his sermon, but it was when he was bidding farewell to the McNeil family. And you re may remember that he said he really appreciated Sarah. Sarah was faithful in taking notes during his sermons. And then she would sometimes tell him what she had applied from what she had heard. And then John said, that was an encouragement to him. If you want to encourage those who minister to you, listen to what they say. Maybe take some notes. They don't have to be extensive. Listen for the main points the challenges or applications, and then act on what you hear. Let them know what you have heard and, and applied. And I have a challenge for all of us. When John or Wes preach, listen for something you can apply. And then don't tell them it was a good message that day after the worship service. Or even something you liked about it. No, instead, come back the next week and tell them what you tried to apply and how it went. 
They'll be encouraged when they see us growing in our faith, the fruits of their labors. And they, like Paul, will rejoice to see your discipline and firmness in the faith. That firmness of faith builds the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the head and cornerstone. Christ is sufficient in all things. Be encouraged as you are built up in the faith. Encourage one another to be built up until we all come to the fullness of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, never being deluded, but being an encouragement to one another and particularly to those who minister to us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message from Paul and we ask that we might be faithful in, in being built up, encouraging one another, join together in love, and that we might encourage those who minister to us. That we are bound together by a common faith, that you are Lord over all things, and that we come together just in our worship and praise to you, the Lord who has the fullness of God dwelling in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.